Good morning, church. I'll be reading to you this morning, Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Adam and Christ contrasted. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Yes, people sinned even before the law was given. But it was not counted as sin because there was not yet any law to break. Still, everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it, they will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yes. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
Amen. Open up your Bibles to Romans 5. We're going to be in verse 12, what, what's real to just read, and we're going to be working through that passage. Now, one of the things we've tried to do, and I hope you've enjoyed it over the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we had uh, Thomas, which was a surprise here, came up and shared a little bit about kind of his life intertwined with Romans 5, 1 through 11, and how he did almost die in his work in regards to just serving Jesus. But he was connecting it to this idea of death being Jesus didn't just save him from death in this world. Jesus has saved him from the ultimate death, which is that one day of standing before Jesus. Are we, are we prepared for it? And I thought he did a phenomenal job. And then last week, both Dave Bison and Gene Kingery came up and connected it just to the idea of, of what it looks like within disability ministry and specifically this idea of what does it look like to write the world. So one of the things we try to do all the time is we try to teach the Bible because we do believe we need to grow in our understanding. We do have to think and wrestle. It's not that it's it's, it's less than thinking, but it's also more than thinking. We need to go practice like they practice. But I would even say this, the beauty of story, what it does is, is it comes into a place in your heart and engages you in a unique way and in a powerful way. So I hope you've enjoyed those things because I don't want you just to be thinking, doing, or even just the way that we are now empowered in, in what God's called us to do. I want all those things to impact you so that we follow Jesus rightly and with, with the power he's promised. But one of the things we're going to look at today in Romans 5 is this particular passage, I think almost everybody would agree that are kind of the biblical scholars within the world. This section now starts a powerful argument that Paul is making. Now, it's powerful from the standpoint that I think like on one end, it's going to convey the lostness of humanity, which I would say this. We need to think a lot about how lost humanity is. For too many people, they believe that lostness is kind of like we're just kind of lost and then we get kind of saved by Jesus. Let me just say this. If you don't know Jesus, you are not kind of lost or kind of dead. You are fully lost and fully dead. You need the work of Jesus within your life. But that's why now he's going to then even expand it bigger from the standpoint of who Jesus is. Jesus came to rescue the lost. And let me just say this. Sometimes we say that, you know, there's, there's people that were so far out there that Jesus could rescue. Listen to me. We're all far out there. But yet in Jesus' grace, there is nobody that he cannot rescue. And the last part that we'll look at today that I think is a part we don't think through enough is this idea that we were called to reign. In Genesis 1, in 128, it talks about the fact that God gave dominion to Adam and to Eve, and we're called to reign. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. Now, the difficulty of this passage, and this is why you got to stay with me as we kind of meander through it, is, is that it's also one of the most difficult passages that Paul reads. And I was, I was wrestling this week, like, why is this passage so difficult? And here's my kind of out to you to kind of let you know if you've ever read a book of the New Testament and you're like, man, I don't get that. Um, I spent weeks trying to wrestle through this particular one, and here's why. I think Paul gives one word for every, what I felt, six words that were needed to understand the passage. But Paul, he's beginning to pour out his heart into this. And as I'm kind of meandering and faltering along trying to understand, I think there's a beauty at how the Spirit of God led him to write this in his perfection, that when it lands out there, man, I'll tell you what, it's about ready to uncork for us the most beautiful picture that you can imagine. It's one that you have to wrestle through and think through and ponder. But in order to keep it simple, because that's what we got to do, we got to always figure out, you know, the keep it simple, stupid principle. I want to give you three words. And these three words, I want you to, if you're taking notes or maybe if you, need, you keep notes in your Bible, there's three words that I'm going to kind of wrestle 5, 12 through 21 around. And the first one is going to be this idea of ruin. 
In 5.12 through 14, is he's going to lay out this concept that humanity is in ruin. And not just humanity is in ruin, but all of creation is in ruin. The next one he's going to connect it to then is rescue. And the beauty of Jesus Christ, and this is where he's going to come in, the God-man, the second Adam he's about ready to call him, comes in, and while humanity is at their lowest in desperation, the God-man comes in and rescues humanity. So the second word is going to be rescue. Now, the last word that's kind of hard to find in there, but if you look down in your Bibles and you have your Bibles in front of you, you're going to see this idea of reign, R-E-I-G-N, reign. The sin and death reigned, and it's going to be all these different things, but you were not just called to survive in this world. I'm going to be a little cheesy here, so just go with me. You aren't called to survive. You're called to, kind of as the cheesy statement goes, we are called to thrive. This has been my argument all throughout the book of Romans. We are not just called to wait until Jesus comes back to experience the life that he's offered. We are, if we are followers of Jesus Christ and have come to him by grace through faith, we now stand as people that have the capacity to walk differently and talk differently and live differently. And to settle for anything less is to sell out our amazing birthright as followers of Jesus Christ. And let me just say this again. Don't you dare settle, Cornerstone. We are not just biding our time until Jesus Christ returns. We're a part of the greatest thing ever, the great commission of Jesus Christ called to advance the gospel around the world, not in weakness and not biding our time, but we are called to advance the gospel in power because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And so we're going to throw out those three words. Everybody got them kind of on there? We're going to talk about this idea of ruin. We're going to talk about this idea of rescue, then we're going to talk about this idea of reign. So let's, let's dive into this and let's see if we can kind of understand this progression a little bit to kind of understand where Paul's going. Now in verse 12, to kind of wrap around it, you can turn your Bibles there. What he's going to do is, is he's going to kind of lay out this idea and look at, look at verse 12 and he starts off with this statement, therefore, and he's basing it upon all the hope that he's talked about in 1 through 11. And he says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, And death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, and here's the kicker, because all sinned. Now what he's doing in this idea of ruin, if you were to look back into verses 6 through 10, you would see him use the idea of weak, meaning every single human being in this room, and that's ever been created, minus Jesus Christ, who came as the full God, man, We have all been weak, meaning we have an absolute incapability of not only writing ourselves, but writing the world that we're in. I was talking to a young man who's a, he's a, he's a huge Bernie uh, Sanders fan. He's what he's got the burn. I appreciate that. And we were sitting down and he was talking about the way that Bernie Sanders is going to write the world. And let me just tell you this, whether you like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or anybody in between, they cannot write the world. We are weak. Why? Look at the next word in chapter, in verses six when he's working this through, because we're ungodly. We're the opposite of godly. We don't pursue after God. Romans 3, 9 through 20 says that we are sinful from the top of our heads to the bottom of our toes. We're in utter rebellion. Nobody, he says, seeks after God. And because we don't seek after God, that now makes us in three, or five, six through 10, we are enemies of God. And being enemies of God, the only reality that we deserve is we deserve his wrath. He's wanting us to know that our ruin isn't just kinda, our ruin is absolute and complete. 
From the moment in Genesis 3, when Adam sinned, when God gave the command that he was to not eat of this, this particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he said, the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. From that very moment, when he disobeyed that particular command, all of humanity was launched into not just being kind of bad off, but as bad off as humanity could be. And it has been just decaying and degenerating ever since that moment. That does not mean there's not good things. It does not mean there's not beautiful things because we're going to talk about grace. God's grace permeates all things. But I think one of the most important things for you and I to understand, if we're going to ever understand what it means to reign, we will never reign until we understand how absolutely incapable we are of following Jesus Christ and of doing what he's called us to do. We are completely dependent. We're in utter ruin. Now, it's not only that, but for sin and death, here's the other thing of understanding our room, and he sees them as like powers. They're not like powers, like from the standpoint of just concept, but literally powers. You'll see this in chapter five, all the way even to the end of chapter six, where sin and death become these things that have engulfed all people, and everybody that's ever entered in this world is completely alienated from God. There are powers, because you'll see in this, and when you get to 13 and 14 and on down, it is being sin and death reigning over people. In this, we start to see that they're not just kind of sinful, but every human being from the moment that they're conceived, whether they know it or not, have now been entered into Adam. He's our ultimate person that sits out there, the one that committed the original sin. And this is the reality, is that because all of us are in Adam, all of us are in sin, and because all of us are in sin, we are in desperate, desperate straits. We're in sin from the standpoint that we not only are dead, but we have to sin. We can't not sin. Now, that doesn't mean we can't do things that are good and things that, that cause you know, us to be happy or to cause beauty. But this sin is so deep within us is what Paul's trying to get. It is deeper than even our genetics. Now, when you think this way, it, it changes everything. Like I told you before, it changes how you view politics. What does that mean? That means I don't care what political party you might assume to, but let me just tell you something. That political party has absolutely sinful people within it. I don't care your parenting. Every child that's ever come along that has God has graced you to parent, you learn quickly. Those little savages are sinners. <laughs> Suddenly the crowd comes to life saying amen. The children are like, what? It's changed how I've done evangelism. Here's the kicker. Sometimes we always feel so much pressured in our evangelism with people because we somehow think we can change their heart. Let me take the pressure off you. You can't change the heart of a person. Only God can. Why? Because they are so deep in Adam's sin. That means the most heinous person on the planet to an Adolf Hitler to the most good person, and I know you're not supposed to say it that way, person on the planet, Mahatma Gandhi, everything in between, I don't care what it is, because all of us are in Adam, we are in ruin. 
Now, on some levels, we don't like that because especially within the United States, we like to be held accountable for our own sin, our, our own consequences. We want to be the one that is me at the center of my particular universe. And we flinch at the idea that because Adam sinned now, I am somehow included into his sin. But listen to me, we're gonna get there in just a little second. You are gonna be so glad that if now one man could plunge all of humanity into sin and death, that means that one man can rescue them. I can't wait to get to the rescue. We'll get there in just a second. But the individualistic mind of the United States struggles to understand how the thought pattern went at this particular mind, especially within the Hebrew word. In fact, the word Adam that we get our word Adam from just means humanity. Meaning that this one now becomes the one who stands over all things, this one now that we were Adam. It's not just that we would have sinned or we could have sinned, all of us were represented by Adam. And a guy named F.F. F. Bruce, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, said it this way, Adam is mankind. And because Adam is mankind, we are in ruin. We have a solidarity with him. We face all the same realities of him. That means if you're like me and you went a bad path when you were young and you got involved in things you wish you would have never been a part of, you are no worse off than the kid that grew up in church that sang in the choir. They don't do that anymore, but back in the day. Everyone in between, we are, here's the word, desperate. We're desperate. My wife is desperate. My kiddos are desperate. My friends are desperate. Our community is desperate. The United States is desperate. The world is desperate. And I'm just not talking about the coronavirus. I am talking about something so much deeper that plagues humanity. We are in absolute ruin. And what you would expect then, by the time we kind of start rolling into verse 13, is like, okay, good. He's going to tell us about the second Adam, but he doesn't actually go there. Instead, what he does is he, he begins to explain out. Again, remember, he's talking to a Jewish audience, and they, in their heads, they're like, yeah, but what about the law? And so in verse 13, he says, for indeed the, was the world, or excuse me, for sin indeed was in the world before law was given, but sin is not, look at this, counted where there's no law. Now, we're going to answer what that means here in a second. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, and even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, what he's trying to say to these Jewish people is, is that throughout history, the great mark of us knowing that we were sinners was not the law. The law merely came in for just a moment to tell us how sinful we are. Now, that's just one component of there's many beautiful facets of the law. But one thing that it tells us is, is God's grace in reminding us all, it doesn't matter if we're Jew or Gentile, we are all sinful in front of a holy God. But even before the law came, there was one thing that reminded people over and over and over again that they were in sin. And that is in Genesis 5, we find out, and he died and he died and he died. Every time you sit in a funeral, every time you reflect upon the fact that last week at this time when Kobe Bryant went down in a helicopter, he was one person amongst millions and billions of people that have faced the same consequence over and over again that reminds us that we are in sin and ruin and rebellion and desperation from God. We all die. 
Paul says, this is the greater reality. Death proved that humanity was in sin. And while the sin might be shown to be the reality amongst the law, that is not the thing that tells us that we're in sin. It is death and death alone that reminds us over and over again. And I think that's why we feel so desperate at a funeral that somebody doesn't know Jesus Christ. I think that is what just reminds us over and over. Oh, yes, we are desperate. Our life is so short. We're in the hands of a God. That is our only hope. We're in ruin. So this is his argument. This is the first one. We're in ruin. We're in ruin from the top of our heads to the bottom of our toes. We're in solidarity with Adam. And let me just talk to any of you in here that do not know Jesus Christ. If you do not know him, the second Adam we're about ready to talk about, you are still in sin. And because you are still in sin, the ramification in reality is, is you will face the same death that is not just physical death, but it is what's called, a, we call a spiritual death. You will stand before God one day and you will face an eternity apart from him forever in the lake of fire. This is just something that we, we throw out there, not as just a concept, but as a reality. You need to know Jesus Christ. Why? Because here's our next word. He's the only rescuer. There is no other rescue. It is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can reverse all this evil that's there. He's the only one that can remodel the world like the world is called to be remodeled. For the last few weeks, we've been remodeling our kitchen and our living room. And have you ever noticed when you remodel and you do demo work, that's easy. In fact, it's kind of fun. I found myself like taking out tensions, frustrations. <laughs> but as we removed it, this whole kitchen began to come down around. And it was a good thing I had people there that knew what they were doing, by the way, because they would have told me, oh, don't take down that wall because I really don't know what I'm doing. But I realized even an idiot like me that knows nothing can tear apart a kitchen. There's something powerful, though, about someone that knows how to put it back together. And what Paul's about ready to do in this idea of humanity being in ruin, when we talk about rescue, and I love this word, this shifting it away from just salvation, Jesus isn't just rescuing us from hell. He is rebuilding all things to the glory of the Father. Then when we talk about this in verses 15 through 17, you can see this. Just look at verse 15. Watch this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, look at this, abounded for many. In other words, the sin of Adam brought death, this decaying, this degenerative force. But on this other side now, this second Adam, Jesus, brought this dynamic power. And look down in the text there. It's called life. Now, I want to try to change your thinking a little bit in and around this word grace. I'm not going to get rid of, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. I'm not going to get rid of unmerited favor. I'm not going to get rid of any acronym or thing that you've ever heard about grace. But what I want to do is I want to stretch your understanding of this term, this amazing grace, because it is not just a concept or a word we throw around. It is a power and it is a force, according to the, the, the word of God in regard to Paul. 
It's a power that reverses and conquers everything that Adam has done. And it doesn't just reverse and conquer it. Here's the kicker of it. It takes and destroys it to the point where sin will never rear its ugly head again, ever in all of God's creation. That means when Jesus Christ comes back one day, people always ask me, well, what's to keep humanity from plunging back into sin that, at that point? The answer, Jesus is going to utterly demolish it forever. So grace now is not just the way that God rescues us and gives us his mercy, but grace now becomes this force that God uses within what he's doing within this world in which sin and death and everything will be fully triumphed over. And not only will the the world won't go back to the way it was when Adam was here, it is going to be extremely better and greater than when Adam was here before. This is what we look forward to. But I want you to catch this. It is not just about the future. That power, according to Paul, we're going to learn next week, is available to us right now. I get so sick of myself and so sick of so many Christians that I see, and we somehow think, oh, it's woe is us that we're living in this awful, terrible world. We are indwelt collectively by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever just thought, I'm not saying we won't sin, but we have the capacity now to live in a way that brings life. And let me just say, Cornerstone, this is what I mean. We can't settle for anything less. The world is watching us. They're wanting to know, are we just a bunch of people that are moralistically trying to sort through life? Are they just a bunch of people that are trying to be good until their King Jesus, whatever he is, returns one day and saves them? Or do they honestly believe that when Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, new creation, life broke into this world, and these people are being made different slowly, mind you, but being made different and into the image of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is now going to begin to argue in chapter 6. Look with me at verse 16. Let's see how powerful it is. Watch this. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. He's like, don't you dare go back there. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, or it brought not only you individually being made right, but this world being made right. Adam brought death, Jesus brought forgiveness. And think about this, not just forgiveness a few times, but forgiveness to all, to all that come to him by faith. The idea is is that while Adam might have done the demo work, Jesus is the one, the skilled builder, who's building it back up because it's far easier to tear something down than to build it in what it's intended to be. Not only that, verse 17, watch how effective it is. For because of one man's trespass, death reigned that one man, or through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And look at this, here it is. Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I'm looking out at a group of people. If you know Jesus Christ, you are princes and princesses of the king. We are not just called to reign in the future, which is crazy enough to think about it. One day we are going to be reigning with him. Like, I, seriously, my greatest fear about the end times used to be that we would sit on a cloud and play a harp. You ever else, else feel that way? 
We're going to be reigning and ruling and engaging in the world that God has given us. But that reign is not just a future concept. Actually, it starts right now. And we're going to learn this next week. It learns as we learn how to reign and rule over the bodies that God has given us and reign and rule over, over relationships that we have together. But you are people now that are now given the power, and this is how far more powerful it is, to reign with Jesus. Adam's transgression bought death. Jesus now brings power. And look at verses 18 and 19. Watch this. And therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, of one righteous man, one right man, leads to writing justification in life for all people. That doesn't mean everybody gets to know Jesus, only those who come by faith. Paul clarifies that later. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Here's the kicker. By one man's obedience, the many will be made right. That's our king. Adam in disobedience grasped for equality with God, crazy. And I would even say this, humanity has been grasping for that equality with God since the beginning of time. Jesus, though, in obedience, as Paul states in Philippians 1.6, I love how he frames that when he says, though he was in the form of God, did not equality with God, something or a thing to be grasped. But instead, it says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. In other words, Jesus came and showed us what obedience is. So on the one hand, there's Adam. If you're still in Adam, if you've not come to Christ by faith, the second Adam, you are still in him. And the outcome that Paul's gonna tell us about in Romans 6 is death. But if you are in this Jesus, the outcome is righteousness, and that is life. He's saying there is no two roads. There's only one road. Or excuse me, there, there isn't three roads. There's only two roads. There's nothing in between, nothing in the middle. That's it. Now, in clarifying this rescue, he's gonna take us a step further. Now, watch this. So there's the ruin of mankind. There's the rescue of mankind. Now watch what he says in verse 20. Now the law came in, and we kind of handled this, to increase the trespass, to show us that we're sinners. But where sin increased, watch this, grace abounded all the more. This force, in other words, sin will not win. By characterizing like all of history in terms of Adam and Christ, Paul is now saying, look, the law is put in its right place, but listen to me, he's saying, Grace now becomes the force that reigns. Let's not miss the purpose of this grace, though. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, here's how I want to finish. There's two concepts that he puts out here in verses 20 through 21 that has to do with either sin or grace. So let me see if we can understand sin for just a second as we bring this to a close so that I can send you out of here with a clear understanding of grace. Sin, and I just wrote these things down, is not giving God the praise he deserves. Sin smears God's name. In other words, things like blasphemy. Sin demeans God's value, idolatry. Sin belittles God. Sin states that God is not worthy of praise. He's not worthy of, of any type of loyalty, obedience. Sin dishonors God. Sin fails to rightly glorify God. Sin brings shame upon God. Or even the way John Piper put it when he was preaching John 48, 9, I love this. What is the nature of sin, he said? It's the profaning of God's name. In other words, they have not lived as though God's value were supremely important to God and to themselves. They belittle and diminish God. To clarify, 
Sin doesn't in any way bring God down. It just means we fail, fail to rightly acknowledge him for who he is. We start to then not only shame God, but we start to then even begin to shame ourselves. We begin to shame others. We begin to value things that don't matter. And I would say, if you want to know why is culture decayed to where it is, it's just the result of sin. But I think one of the best passages in all of scripture to define sin is in some ways given by what Jesus Christ came and did when he died on the cross. And I'm not, if you want to go there, you can go to 2 Corinthians 5, 14, but I just want to read it over you so that you can hear this just for a second so we can understand sin, so we can understand grace. Verse 14 says, the love of Christ controls us because we've all concluded this, that one has died for all. We're going to learn about that next week. And therefore all have died and he died for all. Here's why. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Let me read that again. He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Therefore, if we connect it to grace, here's what grace is. Grace now is a reigning force that combats and leaves sin inoperative. In other words, it combats against us wanting to live again for ourselves. And instead, what grace now comes and does in our life, it begins to come in and undo our desire to live for ourselves and instead replaces it with this newfound desire to live for the one who died and was buried and rose again. Sin comes into our life now, into this ruin, and begins to rescue, and not just rescue us from hell, but it begins to come in and it begins to teach us that the real way to reign is not just by being a leader or an authority, but the real way to reign is when I no longer live for myself, but I live wholeheartedly for God. Amen. Every one of you in here, this is what you were designed for. You were designed to not live for yourselves. And I'm here to tell you, you can shut off that motor. Shut off the motor of trying to make yourself happy because you can't. Only God can make you happy. Shut off the motor of trying to make yourself powerful. Why? Shut off the motor of trying to make yourself prestigious. Shut off the motor if you're in here and you're someone that's younger. I, was, I went to a, a, one of the high schools and I watched the awards ceremony. It was, it was so interesting to watch myself as people were trying to be cool to go get their awards, you know, and it was awesome. But you, you can shut off trying to be cool. You can shut off trying to be all those things that you were not designed for because Cornerstone, you were not designed for yourself. You were designed for the one who died and was buried and rose again. Shut off all those other things and allow grace to penetrate into your life and transform you completely from the inside out. And then go do whatever God's called you to do. I just want to speak to those who are a little bit younger right now and all these that are older. You, you, can, you can listen. I said use like I'm Rocky Balboa. All of you that are older can listen. We live in a world in which we're told to get as much out of this world as we possibly can. We're told that we need all of these different things like power and prestige. We need money. We need success. We need happiness. 
I'm here to tell you that the scriptures never call us to go pursue those things. We're called to something completely different. And I don't believe then we're called to the opposite somehow that if we're poor, we're better than other people. Or if we're somehow devoid of these things over here that we're better. That's not it at all. I'm here to shut off all those things you're pursuing. And what if those of you that are in middle school or high school or college, what if you just devoted your life, single-heartedly devoted yourself to the king of the universe and learned what it means now not to in any way try to please yourself, but to find what it's like to pour your life out in such a way to the glory of God. I promise you at the end of it, it is a life you will not regret. If you pour your life into making yourself happy and making yourself powerful and making yourself prestigious and making yourself all those other things, you will have a life that is full of regrets. And so in the name of the Father who adores us, the Father whose name we live for, in the name of the Son who came and he brought us grace, Grace never ending, grace that is free, grace that is unmerited, grace that is something that we don't deserve. In the name of the Holy Spirit who empowers us now to be the people God's intended to be, Cornerstone, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to live for yourself anymore. You can live for him for whose sake was died and raised. This is what reigning is about and what we're gonna learn about in chapter six. Cornerstone, you're free. You're free to live for him. And Cornerstone, go for it. Pour your life into it. Now, the way we're gonna finish is with the Lord's Supper to kind of celebrate this. And so I'm gonna have the cup and the and bread come forward. They're gonna come and you're gonna get both of them. Now in it, <clears throat> if you've got your Bibles, go to, to 1 Corinthians 11. And let me kind of show you how I'm gonna connect this dot of, of how we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 and look at verse 26. And guys, you can go ahead and start passing them around as we're kind of walking through this. Thank you. You'll need to take a cup of bread and a, and a cup of, uh, of juice. Now look at verse 26. In taking the Lord's Supper, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How do we proclaim the Lord's death? When we take the Lord's Supper, it is a remembrance. It's a remembrance of his death. It's a remembrance of the reality of his death, the goodness of his death on our behalf, the shame that he went through. It's all those different things. But Paul says, I want you to celebrate it until he returns. And the way that we celebrate the death of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5, is, is we take it and we say to God, I no longer live for myself, but I live for you. And so what I want you to do right now as we think about taking the Lord's Supper is to wrestle with this idea because I think this is the hardest part about it, is do you want to truly live for him and not for yourself? Wrestle with that question as you hold the cup. Wrestle with the ramifications. Wrestle with the ways in which your sinful heart tears you apart, but also wrestle with the reality. You know this, that Jesus is the pearl of great price and the treasure in the field. He is worth it to live for him and to not for yourself. So as we pass it around, the next few minutes, they're all yours. If I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup and after supper saying, this cup as you drink it, in rem- or, excuse me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat it, this bread, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The bread represents clearly the body of Christ. He came not just as an apparition, but he came as a full man. He came to represent us in a whole new way. Adam also came in the flesh, but Adam came and we learned he brought with him sin and death. Jesus came in the flesh and he brought righteousness. And let me just say this, he brought with him life. And so as we celebrate the bread, we celebrate a savior that was crucified on our behalf. He took our death in our place. But he didn't take our death in his place just to avoid hell. He came, it says, to give life and life like we have never imagined. And so as you take this bread in remembrance of Jesus, be blown away by what he's done in the past, be satisfied in what he's done in the present, but never forget grace isn't just a past or a present thing. Grace also envelops the future. He wants to transform us into the men and the women he wants us to be. So as we take this bread together in remembrance of him, let's do this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. The cup, it says, his blood represents a new covenant. It's not like the old covenant that had the law. It's the new covenant that he promised in Jeremiah 34 that he promised in Ezekiel 36, that he would write his commands on our heart, that he would make us into the people that he wants us to be. He would transform us into the image of his son, Jesus. The blood sure does represent the forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, right, there's no forgiveness of sins. We never wanna lose sight of the past grace of Jesus Christ. But that blood was sprinkled in such a way in the Holy of Holies in front of a holy God that says to him, all of us aren't just rescued past and aren't just rescued present, but are rescued forever, not just to bide our time, but we are rescued to be the men and the women that he's called us to be. I don't care if you're 18 or if you're 98 and everything in between, who God wants us to be is far greater than anything we could imagine of who we want to be. He's transforming us and making us different. He's making us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and cornerstone. Don't settle for anything less. Next week, we're gonna learn what this means. But in remembrance of Jesus, in remembrance of his past work that has present present consequences and future realities, this do in remembrance of him. Can I have everybody stand up? we get ready to go. So in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, God bless you this week as you learn how to live not for yourself, but for him who has died and buried and rose again. And all God's people said,